the way that we work together though is important because it's not efficient has never been neither was it with monica nor with katie or dan or any of the other collaborators we've had in the sense that we don't divide up the work we work together on everything and so some of it involves sort of respective expertise or interests but some of it is just checking and balancing each other and so it seems like it's inefficient but the reality is that the critical eye and the critical voice that is brought to it in my mind is all worth it because it narrows down some of the issues between you know questions of rationale and efficiency Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Nidera Tarani and Arthur Chang of NADA for a fireside chat about how to own the means and methods. Nader Tarani is a founder and principal designer of NADA, working on interdisciplinary platforms. Mr. Tarani's research has been focused on the transformation of the building industry, innovative material applications, and the development of new means and methods of construction as exemplified in their work with digital fabrication, which has won numerous awards. He is also the Dean of the Cooper Union's Irwin S. Shannon School of Architecture. Arthur Chang is AIA, is a principal of NADA. He's been a key part of NADA and a collaborator of NADA's since 2004. His work in construction management and technologies confronts complex questions of means and methods to make bespoke aspects of NADA's building designs both deployable and affordable. Chang's investments in fabrication, mock-ups, and material testing have served their clients in many ways and have led to his work receiving some of the most prestigious national and international design awards. With that, thank you very much for joining us both. And I also want to thank uh, Chris, uh, our, uh, my co-host here, who joins us every week. Thank you. Thank so, you for having us. Thank you. Yeah. I think it would be good to start a little bit on basically maybe a little bit on your working relationship together. Maybe you can kind of start us off and like, how did Arthur enter the office? What was that like? And we can talk a little bit about um, the evolution since then. So uh, I entered the office back when it was called Office Da. In 2004, I interviewed with Nader and Monica. And they offered me donuts and made comments about my, my attire. But what really was kind of sealed the deal was the conversation with all the other staff that were um, in the office. And I spent about two hours hanging out with them when I was offered a 15-minute interview initially. So it was uh, basically, you know, your typical junior staff coming in from the very bottom and hoping to prove himself to, uh, to work in a cool design firm and slowly making our way up to you know, where we are now. I don't know. Nader, do you remember uh, that interview? Very well. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. And I also remember that we didn't have work. You had to go yes. get another job. And we just kept in touch for the moment that was the right moment. And we reached back out to you. We had no hope of getting you, but actually you did uh, return. So that was a, uh, yeah. yes, I, I remember it distinctly. You asked if I knew anything about IT. And I just said, yes. <laughs> and and still people are asking me what to do with their computers uh, on a daily basis, <laughs> whether or not I know what to do with it. Yeah. 
it became a myth, apparently. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Do you remember the exact IT problem? Oh, no, it was, a pre I believe, a previous staff had uh, cared about the server, and then he was on his way out. I think IT problems follow me to this day, so uh, there's a myriad of versions of it. Uh, here's the way that we work together, though, is important because it's not efficient, has never been. Neither was it with Monica nor with Katie or Dan or any of the other collaborators we've had in the sense that we don't divide up the work. We work together on everything. And so some of it involves a sort of respective expertise or interests but some of it is just checking and balancing each other. And so it seems like it's inefficient, but the reality is that the critical eye and the critical voice that is brought to it, in my mind, is all worth it because it narrows down some of the issues between you know, questions of rationale and efficiency on the one end and just pure intuition and hunch on the other. Have you started to see patterns in where your biases are? Do you sort of feel kind of cemented in that spectrum of biases? Or do you find the team is actually occupies different parts of that shifting? So, you know, it's not that one person has any particular you know, strength or bias for one thing or another. Or do you find that you actually do have kind of a bias, but it's complemented by the other uh, participants? I mean, I wouldn't say that there's a... Uh, our Tastes and kind of uh, biases seem to have kind of flowed together over the years. So it's more of a reinforcement and, and check and balance in terms of how a certain direction might be best um, reinforced. And so, I mean, Nader might have other thoughts on this, but, uh, you know, we are sometimes all just our, our own spanners in the wrench, in the gears. If we feel like something is going real smooth and, and right and we bring in the other to review, there's always going to be a realignment, whether if it's for a pragmatic direction or a more conceptual, broader dimension, we always have to expect that that's going to happen. I do think bias and strength are two different things, though. In other words, yeah. bias and prejudice come together around habit sometimes. And sometimes habit is comes out of knowledge and foundation but often it's out of laziness. It's something you're trying to escape. Strength is another thing because there are people with uh, either spatial sensibilities or syntactic abilities that others just don't have. And so definitely I can see our mutual strengths in different areas. And, and that's one of the reasons why we end up coming together on different things because it just it's an imperative that we bring to each of the projects. But I think the word sensibility is an important one. It's not about taste alone. It's sensibility is also about maybe a way of working or a degree of resolution or knowing when you've arrived someplace. So I, I think that over bias, I would push for sensibility as a sensibility is something you have towards an artifact, but it's also a process. I'm curious how that, what you discussed about like the working to collaborating together in an inefficient process, which is more like there's a constant dialogue happening and 
over time, the resolution of a project is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. How do you negotiate that exploratory part of the process? Do you find that, you know, often with design firms we've talked to, that design process can extend all the way, all the way to like on site, right? Where it doesn't really end. Is there any productive constraints that you've added along the way? Or like, is like, do you operate in phases such that you know, okay, by this time we definitely have to have this thing at a certain point or like, it's just, we're going to face downstream problems, no matter how um, aspirational the project might be in a sense, right? Because you have to, one constraint is obviously the reality of time and budget. I think you're forgetting another component to this question. It's not just Arthur and me. There are, first of all, a host of other people all around us right now in the room, but even more in a more vulnerable way, we have other collaborators that are central to what we do. So just to cite two things that we're doing right now, we're working with uh, Guy Nordenson on something that is of some structural complexity. And uh, precisely because Arthur and I have come together in a certain terrain of ideas and thoughts, The question is not what we do together. We are bouncing these ideas back and forth all the time. But in many ways, what we're working on with Guy, he is leading some of the initial thrusts around which we are becoming the architect. So becoming secure enough to collaborate beyond our own boundaries is a whole other dimension that is also opening up formal material and uh, syntactic languages for us. By the way, you brought up Moody Nolan earlier on. We are doing another thing with them also. And so engaging their process, I mean, it sometimes means ex- engaging processes that are external to ours, but absorbing them and bouncing things back and forth. So I, I think it's an important part of opening up that discussion. I'm glad you brought up the Moody Nolan example because Alan Schaefer, who we had on as a previous guest, COO and also Chief Sustainability Officer, he has a great moment where he talks about looking for collaborators that challenge Moody Nolan rather than sort of work in the exact same direction as Moody Nolan and like seeking those out. So I imagine, actually would like to maybe dig into that a little bit. How do you, it's fascinating how you talked about like bringing the first threats from Nordenson and becoming the architect around those. Could you elaborate a little bit more? What does that mean exactly? Like, and is there tension in your collaborations, like productive tension in your collaborations? How do you engage seriously on the work together as if you are longstanding working partners? Yeah. So this is one of the first projects that we've done with them. And so there is a lot of feeling each other out on what how one works and where one's biases and when one's uh, sensibilities lie and being able to be flexible enough to respond to them is uh, is something that we're learning to do more and more with each step of the process. And I think when we start fresh and early before anything, anyone's dug their heels into any one idea, it opens up the possibilities quite a bit. And this, because we haven't invested ourselves into one direction or another. That being said, we've also been really comfortable in throwing away something that we've been fighting for for a while when we realize this is a better idea and towards the development of the best idea, we'll make those moves. I think it's important not to fall in love with 
one's own ideas or one scheme immediately. So also part of what we do, whether it's with Guy or with ourselves, is to you know, struggle with a series of paths that are asking certain types of questions and then making difficult choices, of course, as we make commitments to one path or another. I think in the case of the Guy collaboration, because they're, we're doing two projects with them, one which is fundamentally structural in its motivation, and the other one where structure is a respondent to a very difficult architectural situation. So we're dealing with both of them in more of a dialogue and confluence rather than, you know, leading this or that, because we are also making judgment calls together as we go along the way. On that note, I kind of wanted to kind of set the conversation around the title of the talk, which has to do with means and methods. And I'm curious then, because a lot, of, a lot of what we've been saying has been sort of at the very beginning and means and methods seem to be downstream of that. And so is that, do you find, first, I'd like to understand the sort of the office's approach to means and methods and like, what's your philosophy around that? knowing that it's seen very contentious topic within the industry, you know, how people claim ownership over that legally or not. And so I'm curious to know more about your office's position on that. Well, this goes back to the early, early days of office. We had zero to very little experience in construction. Neither Monica nor I had any professional experience in offices outside of maybe some design competitions here and there. And not really being registered architects, nor informed about sort of the legal aspects of practice. So when we understood that, you know, the architect only has rights over the design intent and not the means and methods, we understood right away our impotence over the exact detailing and the exact protocols of a construction process that was so central to what we were doing. This is the mantra project. And, and here, uh, maybe I can share this with you. I don't know if you can see it right now, but it's yep. essentially this pavilion that was priced at $200,000 by the contractor. And we just couldn't believe that because the budget of the overall project was no more than $250,000. And so what we did and what we had to do was to essentially figure out, well, how are we going to build it? And so by drawing out the plan on the ceiling with different layers and dropping plumb bobs from the ceiling down to exact the intersection of each section, we emerged out of that after the first day here on the upper left with seven or eight layers, knowing that we could get to all of the layers by the end of 30 days for about $35,000 with profit. That was our kind of moment of arrival at understanding that we really knew nothing about anything about the architectural business and that means and methods, quantity surveying on the one hand and understanding the delivery process and the labor involved in it was a central part of any design process. Well, the good news was that we understood the geometry, we understood the structure, we understood the material. We were completely ignorant of how a project is priced and sourced and all of the others. So just by doing this, that started opening up the avenue for a range of things we did subsequently. 
not long after that bit of practice, we did the RISD library, which was another level of collaboration where we were able to own portion of that means and methods by the mere fact that there was another collaborator, a fabricator team that was interested in using their digital tools to be able to build things that were non-repetitive and non-typical. So it was being able to find that partnership of like-minded uh, fabrications, people who are looking to grow in, in one direction and we're growing in another direction where we intersect, that was uh, quite a telling moment as well. And there's been a long line of these kinds of collaborative uh, teams that we've worked with. I'm sure Nader could speak to all the furniture research that was done early on as well. It is important to underline the idea that in Mantra, the restaurant I just showed, we absorb not only the profit of building that dome, but also the responsibilities that go with it, and therefore the liabilities that are associated with it. At RISD, we were able to collaborate with a, an incredible builder. In this case, it was Shamit that was working with us. And so Arthur's expertise and oversight on that project came really at the technical level without us having to bear the burden of those same liabilities. Because in that sense, by educating and working with the contractors and the mill workers, they felt confident to own it at that point. So I think there are moments where the tension between architect and builder are played out mostly as a result of ignorance or just not knowing how to build something and, you know, over budgeting for it. And, uh, and other times they come into confluence because both builder and designer realize that there's something extraordinary that they're doing together and they can do it even more efficiently if they do it this way or that way. And they work together to amass this thing uh, together. I can show you, you were talking about the DC house, right? And um, we did something similar with C.W. Keller on that. And uh, actually, this is also a description of our office. That's where we're sitting now, but this is right underneath us. And these pieces that you're looking at here are mock-ups of the interior of the DC house, very close to where you were working, basically a house away. And um, within that context, we had a very difficult situation with a contractor that wasn't understanding basically the work. So maxed out on the scope of the interior, all of the kind of light red lines are indications of millwork, strided north-south. We worked on with C.W. Keller to bring all of these mock-ups into uh productive alignment on an interior that was incredibly fraught with problems, but the millwork helped to overcome them through the way it was finished offsite. So all of this, what I'm showing you right now is uh, much like RISD, an exploration about how and what you can achieve when you're working incredibly closely with a contractor. What is the motion that the contractor is moving back to you as the architect? to fine-tune intent, right? As the, both, as the both of you are gaining control over means and methods, and also in some sense, you know, both gaining control of intent together, what does it look like on the receiving end or from their perspective, pushing back to make it achievable? Maybe I can speak a little bit about 
our experience in IDP, which is in a way bringing all of these kinds of responsibilities together in a common profit kind of framework, mm. right? So we're all looking forward toward the same goal of a, a project that is meeting all of its design intents, but also profitable. So the typical conflict between a contractor trying to hold on to all of the money and the designer who's trying to take away all of that money and, uh, and to get the design becomes a much more integrated relationship. So this push and pull that we experience when on another project with RISD, the dormitories that were just completed recently, had uh, many levels of design kind of elaboration that developed during the design process later than actually you might expect in an IDP process. That with a team that had a common goal, we were able to you know seek out the cost-effective method and develop it together. And that took a lot of commitment in terms of the design team and the contractor's team sitting together in the same room and hashing it out on a kind of daily basis. And so the investment that we put in and they put in upfront in order to develop those systems was critical in like the success of that project. And in a way, the conflicts were still there, but we were able to, instead of a torturous back and forth over a long period of time, we were able to resolve it, uh, you know, in place. In a way, we are able to own means and methods in a kind of secondary um, fashion because we were so close to it. You just have to remember, when you do this process, you are in a room with two dozen people every week, every Monday in our case, for eight hours. So if you're going in there without a collaborative spirit, you're going to lose from day one. And so you're looking at their intelligence and their expertise as a resource, not as a liability. That also is not just to say the process is all you need. It's the team members themselves that do have a like-minded mission that makes the process work. So you know, having a client that cares about the design, having a builder who cares about quality and design and, and delivery was quite important. So this was another Shamit project, who, and they really did have a devotion to develop the IDP process in many, many other projects. And um, we owe a lot of the success of it to that collaboration. Do you find that, where does the education for this process come from to the client? So is it, you find it that, are you increasingly seeing clients that are, obviously there's different types of clients, but I'm assuming someone has to lead that conversation, whether it's the client already knows about this process and is kind of like, is interested in doing this, or if it's from Nada's side, is it that you're also educating on like the partners that you've had in the past that could deliver this project to the, you know, because there's also some level of certainty that you want to have as an office to the outcomes and likely working with previous builders that you worked with that you understand have a good working relationship. Maybe you can walk us a little bit through that, like who should be surfacing this up and leading this conversation. I think the critical, at least from our, there's a caveat, this is our one and only IDP project. So it was a, a big learning experience for us, but Shamit had been kind of invested in working and developing this process in Providence for a good number of years and was looking for the right opportunity for to do something like this with RISD with the right scale. And to really be able to do this right, you have to have the connections of the teams and the sub-consultants and the subcontractors and all with a group experience. So 
in this sense, they were the ones that brought us in into this idea. But now we've become one of their uh, ambassadors in terms of seeking out. Well, they had done this. Like they had done this about three or four times before, but never made money on the process. With us, they made a profit on it. So now they're actually quite psyched about the idea that the system actually works. So I think if you get a good team and you get a good team that is working together towards a common cause, it works really well. Now, client aptitude and, and appetite are two different things, right? Because there are clients that want everything but don't have the patience for it. And then there are clients that just think they want design, but they don't really want design. So I, I think that, you know, you get to know who you're working with pretty fast as you get into the first few weeks of conversation to exact how is it that they are looking not only at your drawings, but at how you're reasoning about the process with them. And of course, like everything, they may bring a couple of names to you for contracting and you may bring a couple to them, but you understand very quickly whether they have the appetite for taking on certain areas of risk, but also the benefits that that risk comes with when it's calculated. As a team, when you, you prefaced some of the conversation about inefficiency, there's this inefficiency by having partners active at the very top that maybe other organizations would split apart uh, in order to achieve higher quality projects. But I imagine there's accumulation of experience and insight across the years of your practice, across the projects. And a great example is like going from the first project with Mantra, assuming risk, but then entering into a partnership next time around uh, where the risk was more properly you know, distributed. <laughs> What might be another example where there's been an accumulation such that not everything is inefficient, but there's some like accumulated efficiencies that are happening in this more unique approach to practice? You said that it was um, that the next step was to distribute the risk and put it in its proper place uh, legally. We then, over the last few years, we've decided to take on that risk again by establishing the NADLAB fabrication space as a as its own entity in order to be able to properly fabricate and install to a certain scale, you know, actual millwork and and other uh, installations. And so that that's been kind of a a mission that has slowly been growing over the years and has been able to bring another source of income into the office that hopefully as it grows to be able to establish and, and stand on its own and become a quote-unquote partner to NADA in a more independent fashion. You know, spanning between the fabrication that we've done for a, a small house in Connecticut, the, all the millwork on the interiors to certain pieces of the, the RISD dormitories, we actually were able to carve out a few spaces in the dorms of one-off millwork pieces that would um, that we were subcontracting to Shamit for. It's also another way of shortening the shop drawing process, finding efficiencies in terms of uh, an almost a design build process to make it even feasible that we would be doing this for a large client like RISD. Do you find that this conversation that you're having internally in the office around how to strategically position yourself and seeing the benefits of the IDP process play out 
and maybe because the office is also maybe more plugged in through its leadership into like the broader academic community. Do you find where a lot of like design forward practices live and emerge from? Do you find that that is there any kind of sharing across different firms around like the benefits of what not as seen in terms of being able to take more ownership of the means and methods? Like, how has that conversation played out more at that, at that level? Or is it very specific to the firm where like there's just not much dialogue happening? No, it does translate into school. I mean, uh, you know, when I was at the GSC, I, we started a materials research workshop alongside Toshiko Mori under her initiative. And a lot of these questions came in there and they resulted in the exhibition that we did there now many years ago, I want to say 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But that course has survived there at Cooper Union. Workshop is not something you step into at the end of your education. It's the first thing you do as you arrive there. The shop is incredibly sophisticated there uh, from wood to casting to metals and digital fabrication. The language of fabrication is one of the first things that a first-year student learns, and it becomes uh, ingrained in their design process. And so problems of representation and drawing on one hand and problems of building become part of their first language. How they translate that to the industry is another leap that happens usually in the third year under the oversight of Sam Anderson, who participates in not only building technologies, but the third year analysis studio and the integrated design project studio. And I'm very much interested and involved in all of those aspects. They don't result in exactly the same kind of conversations we're having here, but they're also not that far. I think the workshop at Cooper is small, and so it sponsors smaller scale crafted artifacts. It's not the same scale as what you see at University of Michigan and some of the larger constructions at Virginia Tech, but it prompts a kind of conversation that shows that construction is not necessarily the end goal of things. It is actually the process of research from day one. We have a question from the audience here. Does Nada have a defined set of workflows? And maybe in particular, like workflows that may not normally exist in standard practice? Well, at the most basic level, the idea of introducing means and methods of a certain trade as you're working on schematic design would be seen to be premature. And the fact that we commonly do that in certain areas is a way of spearheading certain things that would otherwise get value engineered if you bring them in too late. Because you either have to partner up with a certain trade or you have to know everything about it before you get yourself into a a muddle later on down the road. So I think that's important. But I also think that from a design perspective, you know, we are architects, we are builders, and we are urbanists. And so invariably a project gains its launching moments from many scales and many directions. And trying to reconcile that is often very difficult. So our initial process of design is actually quite chaotic as we try to bring problems of detail urbanism and programming all into conversation with each other. Yeah. Another kind of follow-up question that just came out was, would be great to hear your thoughts on the relevancy then of the traditional phase definitions, SD, DD, CD, CA, 
and whether those definitions are merit reevaluation in general, just because they don't really map over potentially to the kind of new availabilities of firms today, whether it's being able to open up a fabrication lab and things like that. It would be here. great to hear your thoughts. Arthur spoke a little bit about, you know, the review of the shop drawings that if you're generating the shop drawings, then, you know, what are you reviewing? You're, you're, you're hitting shop drawings already at the end of DD in a way, right? So you, because of the way that you're designing something, I, I think there are many things about the traditional SDDD, CDCA process, which merit uh, reconsideration. And I think that part of our let's say, thesis about means and methods has been, if you can address a lot of those things, even conceptually early on, you can overcome the value engineering process. You can address budgetary volatility way in advance and build credibility with a client because you're building mock-ups and models that produce evidence of how something works. And sometimes the mock-ups and models just produce a different level of credibility than a rendering. Inside of the team at NADA have specialized roles emerged to support the practice, or is it a philosophy of the firm to, in the same way that the firm moves into scope that's traditionally out of scope? Is there a similar idea about every one individual contributor in the firm is absorbing more scope than they might in another organization. Let me ask because I'm, you know, we're always looking for to hire new staff, and part of this conversation is always about, you know, what is the role of a junior designer in the office, and whether or not you be funneled into the model shop and uh, or just do Photoshop kind of images and things like that. But it's always our interest to have a jack of all trades, a Swiss Army knives of of staff that is able to plug in and learn all of the aspects and whether or not we are able to afford them the opportunities to have all of those experiences uh, in their tenure here is not always under our control, but um, it's always my desire in order to to grow well-rounded designers. And, And that being said, we do hire folks who have expertise in fabrication, expertise in um, scripting in, in those sense, but never are they siloed into those those skills. People have characters in our office. So <laughs> we have one individual with an enormous amount of patience who's able to channel complex institutional processes without flinching. We have another one who's a sharpshooter who can solve almost any problem construction-wise without any emotion. So character is a big deal in in all of this, and you can't draw that out. It has to do with the constitution of a person's ability to, in a way, absorb complexity and respond to it productively. Part of the necessity of a small office, too, that we're able to move and be nimble to whatever comes our way to overinvest in a production team uh, would only just send us in the wrong direction when it's all promo time, you know. I'm curious to go back then to the conversation on education for a minute. And I think we can then transition to some more of these questions that are coming in, which are great. Do you think then one of the opportunities for potential innovation with even within education too is 
bringing some of like, I always thought that contracts were like the least innovative thing within the industry with potentially the most impact. And IDP was kind of, you know, since it came about, was kind of this way of rethinking contracts to provide innovation because so much of the industry's tension comes from that trifecta of like incentives. And yet it was, it's so little discussed, right? This conversation on like innovative contracts, like how do we really think about the business model of the industry, even starting from education so that when people go out into the working world, there's a sense of like, you know, a different attitude too, right? Just as much as that sharpshooter might be really well-versed in like understanding the construction side, they'll also have maybe the curiosity or the kind of insight to think about the downstream impact of that from a cost perspective too, or at least think about that, you know, the downstream implications of that to the client or the budget. I'm curious if you, if there's anything around that that you think is potent or whether, you know, really that should not be left on or not introduced necessarily. To clarify that question, you're, you mean the understanding of contracts or, uh, or, or more like, you know, like contracts is just a topic of potential innovation within professional practice. But I think there is something to probably be said about like bringing innovation to what is typically not discussed as much within academia, which is, you know, uh, that part of innovating the business model, whether even just talking about. You know, how would you design a firm today, knowing the ecosystem of potential ways to distribute the message of a firm to like the lowering cost of 3D printing, all these other things that really can lead to what we're seeing, what we're talking about here, which is innovative on the business model of the firm by adding additional components to it that strengthen your kind of like the philosophy of the firm. In other words, like, can students learn this? Should they? And would that make for even stronger students that are coming out and emerging from school today? Yeah, I think they certainly should. And if they do learn these things, can if they could come to the our office and help us figure those things out <laughs> internally. It's funny you were saying in our earlier discussion. You know, there's a perception of what what an office is uh, kind of out in media or whatever, and in the zeitgeist and all of that, and what it actually is. You know, we're all trying to figure it out just as much as anybody else, you know, and there isn't that, there isn't always as aggressively innovative on all fronts as we would like to be, but that's all just to say that we, we're still learning. I do think you don't need to replicate practice within the context of academia. I think that there are moments where a healthy distance allows students to develop conceptual aptitudes within more confined and constrained ways, focusing on certain things without actually worrying about their implications. And then as they begin to amass both experience and knowledge and make connections, lateral connections between what they've been doing, begin to absorb some of the broader legal, political, and social implications of what they're doing. In other words, sometimes if you try to pretend that education can be holistic from day one, what you end up doing is watering down some of the very difficult complexities that come with just understanding space or understanding syntax. It's so complicated, everything, that sometimes you need to develop pedagogical methods that are allowed levity and delay and uh, a slower engagement 
in tandem with that, what Arthur ended with saying is the idea that your education doesn't end at the end of school. It's, you know, I'm 30, 40 years into practice now, and I'm still obviously learning not only technical things around me, but also changing conceptual strategies. And each of those are a learning moment. So I do think that we keep trying to bring what we learn here back into school and maintain some of the academic spirit that we have in school in our studio here at NADA. But I do think also that just maintaining some healthy distance sometimes allows students to think through models of practice that we haven't yet thought of. What questions are most pressing to both of you right now where you still feel very much like a student who's trying to find their way around a new problem space? From a technical perspective, I would say there's too many to enumerate because we, you know, we are a young firm still from the perspective of building experience. You know, you talked about how do you build a business and, and how do you grow a business? And that's an area in which we're also relatively weak. Finding or cultivating clients is an enormously difficult task for a firm that does not have its cultural roots in the United States and doesn't have immediate connections to patronage, finance, or social networks, building up networks within the arts, within education, within housing developers, it's a very slow and arduous process. So how one is able to do that successfully is still a very perplexing phenomenon for me. How do you find the next job? Because each one comes differently for us and it's never a consistent process that is- Aaron Cole, Aaron Cole asks, how do you evaluate and ultimately select reject projects that NADA take on? I can count on one hand projects we've rejected. So it's, we haven't been able to be that selective given the limitations of a small firm. Another question here, at what point can you deduce that the design process is regressing rather than moving forward? You talked earlier about like um, having multiple parallel paths and making hard choices. Do you find moments where you realize only in once you've gone a little bit of ways forward that you may have made the wrong choice, is it, do you have to move backwards or is there ways that you can kind of skip to maybe one of the parallel paths that you had dropped previously? We do that all the time, right? And sometimes it comes from outside critique or a client review. There may be a team, a type of meeting where you work with a certain portion of the client group and then it shifts into an upper echelon, which redirects everything completely. And we, where we thought we were doing very well, we, all of a sudden we're no longer doing well. So we have to have those kinds of critiques and reviews internally as well, but then we're not always able to have the right insight necessarily without those, um, those outside contributions. I would say something to that question. It says, at what point can you deduce that a design process is regressing rather than moving forward? It isn't just about moving forward. A lot of projects move forward in a very bad way. And one of the things you have to learn is how to cut the umbilical cord from the original idea you had and just start all over in order to ensure some kind of conceptual clarity to what you're doing anew. 
So that regression usually has to do with forms of compromise that don't bring clarity to the situation. There are many other forms of compromise, by the way, and value engineering that force you to make hard choices. And those are usually the good ones because you actually have to take them quite seriously. And so you don't over-design something. But I do think it's a, a very smart question about you know, when you know you're going in the right direction. It seems that you have a set of goals that you're working towards. And if those goals are not clearly demarcated and there's nothing to gauge against. It's one of the great things about, I keep talking about the RISD project because it seems to align with certain examples, but that um, they had a very clear mission, very clear goal that was uh, iterated over and over again as we went through and we were able to kind of realign each time we, at each step of the design process, each move where we were looking for more money or looking for ways of uh, taking from Peter to pay Paul and, and whether or not those things aligned with the broader mission, it was, we had to take it from that perspective at every decision we made. So anytime you're making a decision is a point that you can review whether or not you're moving towards regression or moving forward. Yeah, I love the thread of what you're all describing. I wonder how this ties back to another question of the contractual relationship between parties. It's a pretty basic question, but I think it's important to, you know, when we talk about also like the traditional phases and the potential for reevaluating that, a question around like in the way that you operate, have you also had to just very strategically think about just how you deal with contracts in a sense? Like, do you not rely on AIA contracts for what you do? Do you have to design it in order to take ownership more of like these means of methods for yourself? We have a good lawyer. We do start with a kind of the AIA contract typically, and it is always uh, per project how we kind of carve out and build on, on top of that. We haven't had very uh, elaborate contracts that we initiated that we are very far from that. Mm. It's always a fight actually against the owner's version of that contract. It's important also to articulate here that there are three companies we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Nada is a design company. It's an architecture firm. NADLAB is a design build entity. And MMM, means method mission, is really the research branch of it, which is a nonprofit. And all of them work independently of each other, even when they are working to support each other in some way or another. And so the contract that you would write for NADLAB is a distinct one because it it has to do with, it's a fabrication contract, which requires other kinds of provisions than a design one. Well, I think we're almost at time. And so I I just want to end. This has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate both of your time today to kind of walk through how NADA operates, which is really amazing. And I feel like we could have gone even further on talking about the makeup of of three legal entities and like, how does that structure itself out? But the last question we'd like to ask is a very non-business question. It's very human. And we get all sorts of answers to it. So from personal to professional. Our favorite question is always to ask, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? And maybe we can start off with Arthur. Nicest thing anyone's ever done for me? I don't know. The other day, my six-year-old daughter climbed into bed with me and said, I want to sleep here and not with mommy. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. I'm like, really? Yeah. 
It's like, mommy's going to go sleep in my bed. I'm going to sleep here. I think I would say that those people that cook for me, and there are many of them, is one of the things that is a kind of higher form of giving than I can imagine because it, you're not just feeding somebody, but you're making something. And each meal is like an architectural project in itself. So for me, that everything that revolves around food uh, is a form of giving that I, I just absolutely love. I love that answer too. You've well, become a very good cook yourself, Nutter. It's COVID, you know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you got to get those master classes. So um, with that, I just like to thank you both for joining us. Thank you, the audience, for participating and for asking great, insightful questions. As always, thank you, Chris, for joining us as well. Just want to give a final plug about Monograph, the company that helps support this uh, webinar series with us. So Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Uh, hundreds of firms are using Monograph to visually manage their operations, streamline their repetitive processes, and empower their teams to grow sustainably. In fact, 85% of Monograph reviews say easy, simple, intuitive. It's designed by architects for architects. So we essentially all are trying to build a tool that we wish we had when we were working at different firms. Uh, Monograph customers are entering timesheets daily and in their browser to get real-time visuals on project performance. They're reducing their weekly staffing meetings by 80% and they're forecasting future billings instantly so they can run the right proactive business and make the right decisions. Basically, you know, in the world before Monograph, you have to wait till a finance person came and a month or so later tell you whether you're on track or on budget. In Monograph, you see that in real time. So you're always up to date and can make strategic decisions like some of the ones that we talked to you today. So uh, thank you both for joining us. Thanks, everybody, and appreciate this conversation. I think it's been really fascinating. I've learned a ton. Thank you so much for having us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.